Streaming now only on Peacock. Five rich and famous international soccer stars. They have everything except love. I think girls in the past have gone for me because of what I've got. That's why we're going undercover. We're setting them up with single American women. They don't know we are famous. They don't know we are rich. And they'll have to hide their true identity. What do you need for work? I'm an ad salesman. (laughs) Oh, God. What am I doing? Love Undercover. New series streaming now only on Peacock. For the world's greatest athletes. This is the showdown we've been waiting for. There is nothing like competing on the world's biggest stage. It's a world record again! Goal for the United States! Unbelievable! And when that stage is Paris, anything can happen. I have never seen anything like this! How about that? An Olympics unlike any other. What a performance! The Paris Olympics. Friday, July 26th on NBC and Peacock. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. After an incredible weekend in the NFL, but this is really a special Peter King Podcast this week. It's the first one ever that is going to be on television on Peacock. So if you're watching this, like I'm sure at least 18, 20, 25 million people are watching this, you're watching the first one in history. So it's really cool. But uh, I really appreciate you joining me. We got a great podcast this week. We've got Justin Tucker of the Baltimore Ravens to describe what it's like to make one of the biggest kicks of your life after one of the greatest games in recent NFL history. So Justin Tucker, the kicker of the Baltimore Ravens, on the heels of their 47-42 victory over the Cleveland Browns in Cleveland on Monday night. He'll be here. And also, America's favorite, Steve Kornacki, will be here to talk about a little bit about politics, but we're going to talk a lot about America and about his love of football. It's going to be cool. So thanks so much for joining me. Going to have a very quick open so we can get right to the conversations. Two very interesting things that I think uh, this week, week 14, will really be remembered for. One, Jalen Hurts, his debut. I wrote a lot about this in my column this week. But I think the most notable couple of things to realize about Jalen Hurts is, look, Carson Wentz's time in Philadelphia is not over. It might be. We'll see. But a lot has to happen before then. I do want you to remember one thing, though. Joe Banner, the former cap guy and executive of the Philadelphia Eagles, uh, told me no contract is untradeable. So don't go thinking that, ah, well, the Eagles are kind of stuck with Carson Wentz. I mean, I don't think the Eagles are stuck with Carson Wentz. Second thing, what teams are likely, if he ever does go on the market, Carson Wentz? Number one, Indianapolis. Number two, New England. There will be others, but I'll tell you what, I think going to Indianapolis in a pretty quiet Midwestern place, and that's where obviously Carson Wentz is from, from North Dakota, um, I think it'd be a great match for him and reuniting uh, with his former uh, offensive coordinator in Philadelphia, Frank Reich. But anyway, we're getting way ahead of ourselves. 
that's not going to be determined until at the very least February when Philadelphia has a chance to sit back and basically think about it. So second thing is with Green Bay winning and New Orleans losing in this weekend, you know what it means? It means that Green Bay not only has a great shot to win home field now in the NFC, but just think about how important home field would be in the NFC. Forget the crowd. I'm talking about the weather. Okay, so the Green Bay Packers would have to play home games on the weekend of January 10th and the weekend of January 17th. So what does that mean? What it means is that look at all of the Southern and Western teams that are going to be in the playoffs and might have to go to Green Bay on January 10th and January 17th. Let's let's go, go down in order. Uh, the Los Angeles Rams, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the Arizona Cardinals, the New Orleans Saints, the Seattle Seahawks. No one on those teams plays with any regularity when it's eight degrees wind chill, when it's snowing sideways. So I understand crowds are a huge factor in the playoffs, but there will be no crowds or there will be very, very small crowds this year. The whole thing is climate. And that is the biggest thing with home field in the NFC this year. So let's get to our conversations. We're going to go first to uh, Baltimore, Maryland, uh, to the home, actually to the basement of kicker Justin Tucker, who had an incredible Monday night. Yeah, I'm so happy this week to be joined by Justin Tucker, uh, the Baltimore Ravens kicker on the podcast. Not only because, you know, he's topical now because of uh, what happened in the Baltimore-Cleveland game on Monday night, but uh, also because he's a fun guest and he has the best set for the Peter King podcast, perhaps in podcast history. So, Justin, thanks for joining me. And you're in a beautiful spot there in, in Baltimore. Thank you. I don't know if I should show everybody that this is my kind of catch-all room right now. We got like a, just like a random TV on the floor, trampoline. <laughs> uh, you got the guitar. Look, you got guitar. You got a drum set. Drum set glass, of, yeah. uh, glass of Prisoner. So we're all... Do you, do you play the drums? I don't. They're 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 miniature drums. They're for my my son Easton. It was a, it was the the Christmas gift that has kept on giving for several <laughs> years now. Uh, as as you can imagine, uh, a two, three, four year old boy uh, loves playing his drums quite loudly, much to the chagrin of his his mother and father at times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. Well, anyway, thank you so much for joining me. And look. Obviously, anybody who watched the Monday night game this week, uh, Baltimore 47, Cleveland 42, um, there are so many things. But what I thought it would be interesting to do is not just ask you about the game-winning field goal, but have you take us into what it was like uh, to be in the middle of, honestly, the game of the year so far in the NFL and truly one of the great and most compelling games that that I've ever seen. And I guess 
I would start out by saying you're on the field and you're watching everything happen. You're, you're watching this incredible game. Do you realize, Justin, when you're in the middle of this, holy cow, this is special? I, I The short answer is yes and no. Uh, I, I talked about this briefly uh, in my post-game media availability, how it really doesn't matter what my feelings or emotions may be throughout the course of a football game or a season. Um, but especially late in a football game where the score is close, uh, my feelings cannot get in the way of execution. Um, thinking of the action and not the consequence, uh, not just for that particular game, which uh, was obviously an exciting, thrilling, um, you know, just incredible matchup uh, and a finish. Um, but also, you know, the implications that the outcome of that game would have for us as a football team for our whole season, as, as we see it at this moment in time, uh, and as we have seen it for, uh, you know, realistically two plus weeks now, we are in the playoffs. We have to, you know, leave no wiggle room for, um, you know, for error, because we know the AFC playoff picture is quite tight this year. Uh, 10 wins could get it done. 11 wins should absolutely get it done. And, you know, that means we have to win out. And then from there on, uh, you know, we're in the playoffs playoffs. And obviously it's, uh, you know, the stakes are even higher there. But, um, you know, it's all of that stuff is there, but – it's important to, as difficult as it may be, I would say it's impossible, um, but you have to put that aside, compartmentalize it, and realize that, you know, your feelings, whether they're positive or negative or somewhere in between, they don't matter. All that matters is the action of, you know, the 1.3 seconds between when Morgan throws the snap back, Sam spots it, and I kick the ball. Um, That's your life. Those are the only things that, I, yeah, it's the only thing I can control is yeah. seeing the ball kicked, uh, seeing the ball leave my foot and, you know, hoping it goes where I aimed it. So let's start now with two minutes and 12 seconds left in the fourth quarter of what has been an incredible game. Your quarterback, your leader, your MVP, uh, Lamar Jackson, is back in the locker room with cramps, getting IV fluids and watching the game on television. And it seems logical to think at that moment that he is not coming back. And your fate down a point with two minutes and 12 seconds to go is in the hands of your third-string quarterback, a precocious kid from Penn State named Trace McSorley, who's never in his life, in his professional life, been put in this position before. So... With 2.12 to go, Trace McSorley tries to convert, you know, a third down play, third and three, and he, uh, he, he sort of gets wound up on the turf and ends up hurting his left knee. And he's laying there on the turf holding the knee. And my first thought watching the game in the darkness in Brooklyn, New York, where I live, is, wait a minute. They don't have another quarterback. 
Who's you wouldn't, gonna play you wouldn't have been. You wouldn't have been the only person thinking that. I think, uh, <laughs> our entire sideline was uh, scrambling, trying to figure out what the next move was. Uh, you know, including myself, our our head coach, our kicking coach Randy. Um, Willie Sneed started taking snaps at midfield just in case he. But you know what? You know what? You know what I heard. <laughs> what I heard today is that Willie Sneed, as soon as he saw uh, Trace McSorley laying on the ground holding his knee, is you know he's go give me a football, give me a football. I got to take some snaps. I got to <laughs> throw the ball. So I heard that you you know you, you were he, he, he was mobilizing. What's that? I heard that he he said literally almost verbatim, "It's my time to shine." He thought he was <laughs> he thought he was going to put the team on his back, and and honestly, the look that he had in his eye, I wouldn't have doubted him for a second. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, it was definitely a, a, a crazy couple of minutes. I mean, the everything that happened from the two minute warning to the end of the game was bonkers to say the least. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that instance that you're talking about, the you know third down uh, does not get converted, and then you know b- between the time where Trace is uh, you know on the field injured and the fourth down play, yeah, we're all just trying to figure out what's but the, I have what's to the ask, move. I have to ask you this. So part of me was thinking, well, wait a second, they're down one point, and I'm trying to calculated in my head this would be 61 62 yard field goal maybe and i'm thinking to myself if let's just say that that happens and it's fourth and five what would have happened at that moment if 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 that's it would you have told john harbaugh or 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 anybody on the team i can do this don't worry i can make this what was going through your head at that moment? Well, first of all, thank goodness Lamar pulled the stone cold Steve Austin and he, by God, it's stone cold Lamar Jackson coming out of the tunnel yeah. and he's got his helmet and he's back in the game. So, uh, and then the rest is history as they say, but um, I, you know, I, I see exactly what you're seeing. I see traces, trace isn't going to be able to go. Lamar has been in the, locker room with cramps and then um you know i see willie starting to take snaps and like i i um i i'm i'm at about midfield you know where the spot of a potential kick would be you know like you said it would have been about a 62 yard field goal uh into that right to left crosswind uh at the dog pound end of the stadium there and uh i i run up to you know where harbs and randy are and I'm basically thinking uh, we don't have a quarterback right now. Like I might be our, you know, this is a pretty low percentage kit for, for but you might be the best chance. And I, I'm thinking, yeah, I might, you know, down by one, um, you know, just all the, everything that you talked about situationally. Uh, and I, I'm thinking, all right, I might have to just, you know, put one out there. Let's party. Let's see if we can knock this thing through. And um you know, Lamar came out and saved the day, but I, 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 I remember saying to Harbs right there on the sideline, Harbs, we don't have a quarterback. I, I might need to, hit, I might need to hit this. And he kind of turns to Randy, and Randy, who's going to be my biggest advocate at all times, 
he does one of these to Harbs. He just goes. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> so uh, uh, Lamar's timing couldn't have been better. He he runs out and. Uh, Were you shocked to see him run out? I, I was surprised to see how uh, uh, sprightly he seemed. Yeah. Uh, he, the IV must have worked for him. So uh, clearly it did. Um, but uh, yeah, I was. I, I think a number of us were surprised to see Lamar, Lamar running out there, and um, you know, not just to you know three step drop and then just try to put the ball on a receiver or you know <clears throat> hand off or draw or screen or something, but to uh, um, you know escape the pocket, roll out to his right, and then just deliver a, a perfect ball to Hollywood down the field, and of course Hollywood runs in untouched for the touchdown and um you know at that point at that point in time i can tell you that uh uh i was in a in a way in a, in a sense relieved um i think a lot of us were but uh i've seen too many of these movies play out and uh you got you got to know that you know baker the incredible competitor that he is and you know jarvis land their, their whole their, their whole offense the way that they were um, you know, the, the, like they, they kept the game highly competitive. Uh, you just had to know that with, you know, a little less than two minutes left that, you know, you, you, you're optimistic and hopeful that your defense can just get them off the field and put the game away uh, right then and there. Uh, but, you know, you can't ever – get too emotionally involved and put too much stock into something that you can't control. Right. So uh, the only thing that, you know, Morgan and Sam and I know to do is just go sit on the bench where it's nice and warm. And then, you know, Be wait ready. for our, oppor- wait for our opportunity. Yeah. If we, you know, if we should get one and sure enough, we did just, uh, you know, just a minute and change later. Uh, and that minute and change seemed like a, an eternity, an eternity. It, it did. You know, this took the last two minutes of this game took an awful long time. I don't know how many, but I, it's probably 20 or 25 minutes. But what I thought was really, really interesting is that. So Lamar gets the ball down um, so that you would be in position to kick about a 55 yard field goal. There's seven seconds to go. And I wonder at that moment, while you're watching this happen, uh, ESPN cameras catch you going out on the field and you made the sign of the cross. And when I saw that, I was saying, man, is this a habit or is this God, you got to help me now. It's uh, it, it's both. I mean, it's part of, um, you know, my routine, uh, part of my ritual. Every, every single time I line up a kick, I um, make the sign of the cross. I've done that ever since high school. Um, for you know more than anything not to ask for or pray for a result uh it's just to acknowledge you know gratitude and thanks for the moment you know just for being you know created to be present in what so many people would consider to be an, an amazing moment um and i you know i do that in the you know, first quarter of the game with a PAT and of course with a, you know, 55 yard game winning field goal to, you know, put the game away. Um, 
you know, so it's more than anything, it's just an acknowledgement, uh, you know, of our creator putting us in this position to, you know, not just for my own self to have an opportunity to succeed in my field, but to put a smile on someone's face. Somebody out there could get great joy from watching this ball go through the uprights. Um, and I'd like to think a lot of Baltimore Ravens fans were pretty excited Perhaps about after yesterday evening. Could, <clears throat> could get great joy. Not a lot of them living in Northeast Ohio, but <laughs> let me let me ask about two specific things coming into this kick. I've always wondered about kickers who are really good, and obviously you are the most efficient kicker in NFL history, the most accurate kicker in NFL history. At a moment like this, does part of you wish that on the play before this that Lamar had thrown a touchdown pass and you could just celebrate with all your teammates this great win? Or are you really sort of happy that this game is on your shoulders? If you make the kick, you win, you're alive in the playoffs. And if you don't make the kick, you're probably going overtime and who knows what happens. What really do you feel like at that moment? It's honestly hard to say. It's probably a combination of both of those things. Uh, uh, and it's not 50% this way, 50% the other. It's 100%. I, I would love to see Lamar toss one down the sideline to Hollywood or to Willie, and they just march into the end zone and the game is over. I would, I would love to see that. I'd, I also relish the opportunity uh, to go out there with Morgan and Sam and the rest of the guys blocking for us and – put the game on our shoulders because that's um, it's, I mean, it's what every kid dreams of, you know, doing when they're playing ball in the backyard with, you know, with their friends or with, you know, with their dads and their moms and their brothers and their sisters. It's what every kid dreams of doing when they're, you know, thinking about, you know, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a kid playing baseball, you want to be, the you want to be at the plate or on the mound with a full count bottom of the ninth world series on the line you know that's like the you know quintessential moment in sport that every kid you know dreams up in their backyard or they simulate over and over again with their their friends growing up so um yeah to be perfectly honest it's 100 percent. i want to see my teammates succeed and uh you know win the game themselves quote unquote uh but at the exact same time i 100 percent want to be a part of that in a you know um in a kind of a more selfish way to be, to be frank uh you know I, I i just i love it you know you, you live you live for it when you were a kid what do you think when you think about moments like this um and being sort of cool as lewis riddick said on the telecast, that guy is an absolute sniper. And where do you think that comes from in your life, in your past? You know, it could be what I was just talking about. Uh, when I was uh, in, you know, in middle school and high school, first starting to learn how to kick a ball straight, I 
remember trying to emulate Adam Vinatieri and seeing what he had done uh, in the snow leading up to that, uh, you know, the, the snow, the tuck rule game, uh, you know, and him putting that game away with two, you know, with two of the, you know, biggest kicks that have ever been made by a kicker. Um, and then seeing him, you know, do the same thing in the Super Bowl. Uh, it's seemingly several times over. Um, you know, it probably started the, the genesis of, you know, that that feeling of that idea. It was probably as a kid watching the guys who had achieved, you know, or succeeded rather in those particular, you know, types of moments. Um, and, you know, seeing that and wanting to do that and looking at Vinatieri and saying, I, I can do that. I want to be that guy one day. And then from there on out, it's, you know, taking it one kick at a time, painstakingly paying attention to the details of how do I give myself and, you know, ultimately whatever team I'm playing for, the opportunity to be successful in those moments. You know, it's uh, one kick at a time, one day at a time. It's such a, um, you know, tedious process at times. But uh, it's also, you know, part of what builds confidence in a performer at the highest level is paying close attention to every single little detail so that I give myself to be one, I, I give myself the opportunity to be one of those 32 guys that's playing in the NFL, you know, on any given Sunday. And then from there on out, it's not even about being one of 32. It's about being one of one. It's about being better than myself yesterday being better than myself the previous kick i mean i got got a pat blocked in the game um you know ultimately you know that uh is something that you just have to like put away and forget about but you know if you if you don't just absolutely pour yourself into the process and and learn to learn to love the you know, have a love hate relationship with the the monotony and the you know the I guess the the difficulties the adversities like if you don't learn to to, to love that then you know you'll never you, you'll I, like in my mind I would never have an opportunity to be one of thirty two or one of one or you know one of someone no one else has ever seen before in this sport. It's uh, you're, you're standing at about the 48 yard line, Cleveland's 48 yard line. Uh, there's seven seconds to go in this game. You're in Cleveland, Ohio. It's 1137 PM on a Way Monday in the middle of December. And I wonder what's the atmosphere like? What's hitting you? Does it feel windy? Does it feel, are you freezing? Do you hear any fans? Explain to me standing there at the 48-yard line with all eyes on you and 18 million people around the country watching this moment. What exactly are you feeling? When, when you bring up every single one of those details, uh, I said this yesterday too in my press conference. It just makes me now 
way more nervous than I ever was in that <laughs> moment when I'm standing about the, you know, 48 yard line. Um, I think about it now and I'm like, I'm really glad I made that kick. <laughs> um, you know, for, for all the, all the things that you, you just mentioned, you have to consider them and acknowledge them and, um, you know, lean into all of the emotion that comes with, you know, digesting all of that, you know, there's uh, right to left in our face crosswind. Yeah. Um, what, explain what the wind was at that moment. <clears throat> it was a pretty consistent. I, I couldn't tell you the, the speed, but it was a pretty consistent crosswind that I, I knew I would have to aim the ball, you know, just inside the right upright from that far away to give it a chance to stay uh, within the framework of the uprights when it crossed the, the, the end line. Um, so yeah, our aiming, essentially all of that stuff that we're talking about leads into, okay, what, what are the nuts and bolts of what makes, what is going to make this kick good? So I consider the fact that the field is completely tore up. Um, it's, it, it was really soft where I would be planting. Uh, there are, um, probably about three foot four foot wide uh, panels of sod going lengthwise down the field, all the way down the field uh, in between the hashes. Um, and each one of those panels has, you know, a little seam in between that panel and the next. So if I plant in that seam, uh, my footing will not be as good. So we need to make sure that wherever Sam spots the ball, I'm going to, um, need and it's a matter of it's a matter of inches uh at you know at, you at want to plant where real turf is not where there's a seam correct so yeah. you know we consider that we consider the wind we we pick an aiming point through the uprights that's small and stationary um and uh from from there it's just a matter of uh you know the mechanics of executing my technique, you know, making sure my plant is wide and square to my target line, uh, hitting the ball on the, that big bone on the right, uh, on my right foot, um, and following through straight down, down the field to my target line, all of those things that we practice, uh, that, you know, I've practiced since I was essentially in high school, um, and tried to, you know, improve upon or perfect day in and day out. Um, and then, you know, trying to squeeze all of that into 1.3 seconds, uh, is obviously the, ch it's, a, it's, it's an obvious challenge, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's the one that you have to learn to love. It's, you know, the, the thing that you have to like lean into and buy into and, and relish and enjoy. Um, and then that gives us, you know, we know that doing all of those things gives us the best chance to make kicks, especially at the end of, you know, at the end of the game, when the, the butterflies can be, um, you know, they're not just in your stomach, but they're trying to like break out from inside of you or something. <laughs> if you, if there was a polar heart monitor on you at that moment, while you're waiting for the snap to come back. And you could read your heart rate on your watch. What would your heart rate have been? Would you guess at that moment? 
there's no way of knowing. Uh, I would, I would guess right before the kick, it would, it would probably be, you know, eighties. I mean, like I'm, I mean, I'm going to, my heart rate's going to, you know, increase. I would think a little bit. This is that actually really interesting. We need to look into that because that'd be, that'd be kind of, that'd be kind of, what is your heart rate normally? Like maybe 68, something like that. Uh, I, when I was playing soccer back in the day, my resting heart rate was probably in like the like upper forties, low fifties because yeah. I was running all the time. But right. I don't I don't really have to do that anymore. So yeah, it's probably probably like mid sixties. <laughs> yeah. yeah. um, but if I, if I had to guess, yeah, I'd probably be in the eighties. I I can tell you that um, you know I, 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 as a as a dinosaur in this league, as a thirty one year old, uh, I'm probably you know less uh concerned about my heart rate and more about my heart pressure having to uh have dealt with as many uh you know tough kicks as we have in in my my time here in baltimore but um you know again it's just that's just part of it you know it's 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 something that uh i wasn't thinking about before but now i'm kind of interested in so you know who knows maybe that's going to be the next the next thing that will take us from you know 90.7 90.7 or 8% or whatever it may be to, you know, 91 or 92, you know, every, every little detail matters. Were you confident when the ball left your foot? I was, I uh, felt like I hit the ball pure. Um, it looked like it would have been good from 65. Who, who knows? Uh, yes. You know, it was just um, a perfect snap, 12 o'clock laces. Uh, I could see the ball the whole way there, the way we, throw the ball over the spot. And then uh, Sam gives me, uh, you know, perfect hold. And I've said it before, the the ball can kick itself at that point. Um, you you got to have, you, you, the one thing you got to have is a guy with a little bit of ability back there, which I do believe I have. Um, but uh, as soon as the ball left my foot, I knew it was going to have a really, really good chance. And the ball got about two, you know, halfway to three quarters of the way there. And I could, I could see the, the ball kind of, you know, hitting its apex of its flight and it started to start going uh, left. It's, it started to, to tail left pretty hard. And um, I saw, I saw Calais over at the left wing with his arms straight up in the air. Cause he's pretty hard to miss. Uh, Calais like, Campbell, yeah. Your big defensive end. Yeah. And he's like seven, eight. So it's, he's kind of <laughs> hard to miss, but uh, I see him go like that. I'm like, well, if he, I mean, he can probably see it, you know, he can see over everybody, you know, he's probably got a pretty good vantage point. So if he saw it's good, then it's probably good. Um, what I thought was really interesting is that, you know, the cameras were on Lamar and Lamar ran out and lifted you up. Did you, <laughs> did you see him coming? What, what did you see after you made it? He, he did surprise me a little bit. He came in, he was coming in hot. Uh, <laughs> but uh, man, you love to see that. Like that's, uh, you know, another one of the bit, maybe the biggest reason you play the game is to be a part of winning moments with your teammates, with your coaches, with, you know, the guys that you work so hard with day in and day out. So to see the joy on Lamar's face and then, uh, uh, you know, Mark Ingram was one of the other first guys out there on the field, uh, you know, and then, you know, looking like scanning the sideline real quick and just seeing how, uh, elated you know my my teammates and coaches were that's that's why you, that's why you played the game you know it's it's moments like that and 
seeing how, um, you know, how that moment, that feeling can bring, you know, it can bring so much joy to so many people, um, you know, through that, you know, through just like the spirit of good competition, it's, you know, it's a feeling that is almost second to none. Was there a moment either after that on the field, in the locker room, on the bus, on the way to the airplane, on the plane, on the way home, was there a moment that will stick with you for the rest of your life? Uh, honestly, I'm so, um, sleep deprived right now. It's kind of hard to pick a, pick a singular moment. The whole thing is kind of a blur, but, uh, I mean, part of that is we got in, I, I got home at like 4 AM, uh, this morning and after a game like that, you're like, there's no way that, that I, I, I was telling everybody on the bus ride, uh, in, in the locker room after the game, all masked up, like, I'm not sleeping for the next three days. I'm going to be way too wired. And I think, I think a lot of guys felt the same way. Um, so it would be, it would be hard for me to pick one moment that, that stands out. Um, I, I feel like you brought up a really good one though, with like with Lamar running onto the field. That's a, you know, that's a, that's a man who plays with, uh, you know, so much confidence, so much emotion. Um, you know, you can, you can see that the game of football brings him so much joy and to take part in that all of us collectively uh, with, with two seconds left, you know, after seeing that ball go through you know, at midfield uh, after everything that our team had been through, not just in that game, but, you know, for the last several weeks, I mean, we've just, you know, kind of, we've just been through a lot and to see, you know, such excitement from my teammates and my coaches. Um, you know, it, it's hard to pick one moment, but all of it is really special. And, and you know what, we got to do it all over again this week. And then the week after that and the week after that, and it's daunting and it's challenging and all of those things, but it's also just like, you know, the most awesome stuff ever. So, you know, I'll leave it at that. Last question for you. You have been your team for the last couple of months basically has been ground zero for the COVID crisis, at least in the NFL. And quite honestly, it hasn't really been a crisis in the NFL. You, you know, you're through now 14 weeks and there are no games to be played in the quote week 18. And so the league, I think, has probably handled it pretty well. But what for the for everything that your team has been through, are there any scars on your team because of it? Uh, you know, maybe maybe ones that are not visible. Um, you know, the 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 fact that we're having a football season in the first place is a blessing. Um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of hard work going on behind the scenes between the, the PA and the league and, you know, all parties involved, the, the medical people, there's um, there, there's, there has been a lot of really, really good intensive work done to ensure that we could even start off a season, let alone, uh, you know, complete one. I'll knock on wood there. Cause we still got a couple weeks left. Um, hopefully we have many more weeks left, but um 
you know, this this football season has been particularly particularly trying. Um, you know, I'd like to think of myself as uh, someone who's mentally tough, if you will. You know, um, but I can tell you, like, I've been uh, challenged just with the, you know, uh, some of the, the the feelings of isolation and um, monotony and every day seems kind of like the last. And, you know, there's this Groundhog Day effect that I think, um, you know, across the league, I think a lot of people are experiencing. Um, But if our greatest complaint is that we're, you know, a little, a little tired, a little, um, you know, a little worn out, you know, mentally, emotionally, um, you know, I think, I think that pales in comparison to what so many people are dealing with out there. Um, you know, how many thousand families are going through some, of course, time. How, many, how many folks didn't have, you know, a, a brother or a sister or a, a son or a daughter or, a, 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 you know, mom or dad, um, at the Thanksgiving table next to them, or how many people were not able to celebrate Thanksgiving in a you know traditional sense with you know all your friends and family in one household? Uh, you know, how many uh, folks are sacrificing and giving so much of themselves to uh, you know fight this pandemic on the front lines? You know, uh, you know, and I'm talking about like healthcare workers or delivery drivers, uh, you know, and any and all of those folks in between. So again, if our greatest struggles and complaints are, and they're, they're valid ones, you know, they're, they're real. Um, but if it's that we're, we're a little bored or tired or, um, you know, emotionally worn out, or if it's, you know, some guys that, that, that have contracted the virus, but have recovered, um, you know, that's, inc- that's, uh, that's incredibly trying for, for those guys as well. Um, but I think it's important to keep it in perspective that things can be, things, things could be significantly worse for, for, for us as we see them, um, you know, to keep, to keep those, those folks in mind that are struggling with, um, you know, the more severe ramifications that this pandemic has kind of brought upon all of us in a sense. Justin Tucker, you've been a great guest. You, uh, you've been on a historic podcast, the first ever televised Peter King podcast. And it's an honor. I, I have to say, I have to say, it's got to be bigger than just making some 55-yard field goal in a football game. But anyway, I am so glad that you were able to join me. And also, really, to take people onto the field in one of the great games in recent NFL history. So thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. And it is an honor to be on the uh, first Peter King live TV podcast. So, so thank you. There's no place like the movie theater. The smell of fresh popcorn welcomes you to a full body experience while candies and sodas compete for your attention. Hoping to join you in the best seats you've reserved on Fandango. It's where movie lovers buy tickets, pick seats, and double up on rewards points all online. All that's left is to walk in, snack up, and sit back. Visit Fandango.com or download the app today for your ticket to the movies. The Premier League is built on hope. 
with the hope of discovering a new star. It doesn't take long for Darwin Nunez to make an impression. The hope of rewriting history. of continuing a dynasty. Unstoppable week after week. This is the Premier League on NBC, USA and Peacock. For the world's greatest athletes. This is the showdown we've been waiting for. There is nothing like competing on the world's biggest stage. It's a world record again. Goal for the United States. Unbelievable. And when that stage is Paris, anything can happen. An Olympics unlike any other. What a performance! The Paris Olympics, Friday, July 26th on NBC and Peacock. And now to the khakied one, Steve Kornacki, who now has two weeks in the studio of Football Night in America at NBC. And I'll tell you one thing, he is absolutely loving it. And judging by the popular reaction, they're loving him too. Here's Steve Kornacki. Back on the podcast. So happy to be joined this week by Steve Kornacki, um, who I can say now I actually work with at Football Night in America and, and at NBC Sports. Steve, I don't know. Did you ever think you would be working for NBC Sports? <laughs> Yeah, I can't say, Peter. This was uh, this was something I expected, um, you know. But uh, very happy to be doing this. is This has been a really exciting couple of weeks for me. Yeah, you know, a bunch of people have written to me in my column, and they have said, "How did how did Steve Kornacki and what what is Steve Kornacki's background in football?" and and you mean he really knows about football too? And I've written back to a couple of people, and I said, you know, it's okay to know something about more than one thing. You know, that's 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 really okay. But I thought what would be good for people is if we could sort of go back into your life a little bit and tell everybody where your football, either love, like, whatever, actually started. Sure. Yeah, no, I um you know, I grew up in um, you know, Massachusetts. Um, so I think uh you could probably figure out that makes me a Pats fan. Uh, you know, I didn't grow up in um, in the uh, New York friendly part of Massachusetts, Western Mass. I'm I'm from you know about 30 miles outside Boston. So, you know, I grew up a Pats fan. Although I I try to remind people because I know sometimes I get looks for saying that. Um, you know, I grew up when the Pat the uh, Patriots were a terrible team. You know, they'd be two and 14, one and 15. This was before Bill Parcells got there, before they got Bledsoe, and then eventually Brady Belichick uh, all happened. So, you know, I was a fan in the days when uh, you couldn't see him on TV. You had to listen to WBZ radio if you wanted to listen to a Patriots game. Um, but that kind of got me into it. Um, you know, I can't say that um, you know, I went to college at Boston University. I can't say that did much for my football interest. They ended up cutting the football team there my <laughs> freshman year. They cut it on homecoming weekend, which I think tells you a lot about wow. the interest level was at Boston University. Um, although I guess there's a great there's a great piece of trivia there. I think Kurt Warner's final uh, college game was played at Boston university, a one double a tournament game right before they, uh, they cut. Wow. That's pretty incredible. Wow. Um, so you, you basically grow up in a time of what Steve Grogan, what's your, who were your, who were your Patriots guys? 
there was Grogan. There was uh, Tony Eason. There, I remember Tommy Hodson. Yeah. Uh, um, I remember, uh, well, the one I, for me, it was the, my favorite player all time will always be Doug Flutie. Um, Cause in there, in that period, it was the 1988 season. Um, Flutie stepped in and there was a little bit of Flutie magic. They didn't, they ended up missing the playoffs by one game. Um, but they, you know, they overachieved. He got him to nine and seven. I think, you know, a lot of kids like me just became huge Doug Flutie fans. And, you know, it was right after that, pretty much when he went up to Canada, it just didn't work out with the Pats, went up to Canada. And it was always this, you know, especially as the team descended in the next few years to the depths that it did, it was always like, boy, they shouldn't have got rid of Doug Flutie. If only they, uh, you know, kept him. So when he, when he came back about a decade later, late nineties to the bills, you know, and you had that, you know, basically two year run there. I, I will say I was, I was kind of a bills fan for those two years. Tell you what was really interesting about Flutie up in Buffalo. I remember going up, I think I did a cover story on him for SI one, one time. And uh, I just really wanted to see were there truly Flutie flakes on the store shelves in Buffalo. So I went to a grocery store and yes, indeed, they had a huge stock of Flutie flakes in there. And uh, yeah, I always got the feeling that Doug Flutie in that period of time, um, you know, had he been born 25 years later, who knows, 30 years later, maybe. I mean, look, I can tell you, I stand next to Kyler Murray and I'm a half inch taller than Kyler Murray. I probably stand next to Doug Flutie. I may be an inch taller. I'm 5'11". So I, I, I really think that sizeism hurt Doug Flutie because people say, I'm not getting, I'm not taking a quarterback who's whatever he was, 5'10". But he was a magnetic, fun, exciting, cool football player and I'll tell you his teammates loved him he's a great leader too but he was fun to watch and I I swear he made right he made the team better they won that was and I just it it drove me crazy I I remember the whole thing in Buffalo where he got benched right before the playoffs Rob Johnson and Rob Johnson was a pro everything you're saying about prototype quarterback exactly and it was like they still the you know Buffalo, I guess it was, I, I, you probably know the story. I, what I always heard was the owner insisted on it, Ralph Wilson. But you know, they just still looked at Rob Johnson and said, this is an NFL quarterback. Doug Flutie, even though he's won 20 games here in two years, is not an NFL quarterback. And, and I, no one was happier than me when the uh, Music City Miracle happened. Yeah, that was, that was interesting. Um, with Steve Kornacki, Steve, um, I just I want to ask you a little bit about where your love of politics really came from and where it started. Yeah, it's, um, boy, this is, I'm going to make some more Massachusetts references here. So I'll give everybody a uh, fair warning on this one, but I was in, um, I was in middle school. I was in sixth grade. Uh, This is, this is 30 years ago now. And um, we did a, basically a class project, a mock election. And I, um, I portrayed one of the candidates for governor of Massachusetts, 1990. His name was John Silber. And some folks may know the name. He was he had a national profile. He was the president of Boston University. Um, he is very active nationally, very outspoken. He's a Democrat. He was a very conservative Democrat. He's running against Bill Weld, the Republican, he was a very liberal Republican. Bill Weld, you know, still around these days. He was the um, Weld was the libertarian nominee for vice president in uh, in 2016, actually ran 
in the Republican primaries against Trump this year. So I was John Silber in that election. And it was yeah, it was a, these were two, as I've come to appreciate in the year since, these were two sort of outsized characters. And it was a fascinating campaign. Weld ended up winning uh, the real election in Massachusetts, although I'll brag, I, I did win as Silber in my uh, in my school election. And it, it kind of got me hooked on it. And then really about two years later, in 1992, um, a guy from not far from from where I live, Paul Songus, who was who had been a senator from Massachusetts, ran for president in 1992. And he won the New Hampshire primary. And there was a brief moment when it looked like he might actually beat Bill Clinton, be the Democratic nominee. And that was just for me as a kid kind of getting interested in politics to have essentially the hometown guy running um, really, I think, kicked up my interest. And I followed that campaign so closely. And I was, you know, I was crushed when Song is lost and, and, and all this stuff. And I think I kind of was interested from that point forward. And where did where exactly did TV enter the picture? So, yeah, it kind of, you know, accidentally, um, you know, my first job in journalism was uh, was covering New Jersey state politics. And this is um, this is back in 2002. And um, you know, I went down there. It was a print job. It was it was this was a novelty at the time. It was online, but it was, you know, writing stories for an online site devoted to New Jersey state politics. And I just I got to know somebody who hosted a weekend, you know, political talk show um, in you know, on New Jersey politics. And so he brought me in and, and made me a part of the show. And, you know, so I was in New Jersey for a couple of years doing, you know, covering state politics, doing that show. And and I kind of got comfortable with it. And I said, this is something I, you know, I actually kind of enjoy. I actually, I wouldn't mind doing more of this. And so I, I started kind of looking for opportunities there. Um, it really wasn't though until, you know, 10 years later that I, I did anything full-time in television. Um, you know, and that was, that was coming in here in uh, 2012. Yeah. You, you know, what was what's sort of interesting about your career is that if you look at your resume, especially where you've had so much of your stuff published, you know, the Wall Street Journal, New York Observer, Daily Beast, uh, Salon, you know, I'm sort of surprised you became kind of a TV person and really a different kind of TV person. But could you have stayed, let's say, on the on the print slash digital side, or was there something just calling to you about doing television? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I certainly could have, um, or I could have at least, you know, tried to, because I, I think until you know, I say I got in here in 2012, um, I, it was it was a bit of a surprise to me. It was a big surprise to me that I got in here. And, um, you know, and had the opportunities here that I've had the last, um, I guess, eight years it is now. Uh, so I was certainly, you know, where my head was, you know, within the last 10 years, you know, was that I would, this was, you know, my career was going to be, um, you know, some form of print. And, you know, um, what would the, the path kind of be that way? I, I will say, though, I always, um, especially once I got a taste of it in New Jersey, and, you know, I, I, I always had a particular interest in election nights. And um, sort of the excitement and the drama of watching the votes come in and, and, and just this, this picture that is kind of slowly developing in front of your eyes, um, trying to figure it out, you know, as that happens and sort of all the rituals and ceremonies built up around election night, really fascinated by that. And I was, I was always, um, you know, hoping for a chance to, uh, to, to play a role there. And, and that's it, 2014 ended up being um, when I got that shot here at, uh, you know, here in, in NBC. And that was 
Um, again, that was a, that was a surprise. That was a lucky sort of confluence of circumstances, but I was very excited to get that. And how how was that? I mean, really, that's not a new invention. Standing up and looking at the map and and everything. But is there somebody who you watched and who you thought was really good at that aspect of doing TV? And maybe let's discuss a little bit about where you've taken it as well. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, the answer is is Tim Russer. Um, you know, and it's it's. I love going back and and just watching. You know, um, going through the archives. It's the best thing I have here. I'm, I'm in my office now. You know, at NBC, and, and the best thing about this job for me is I have access to our archives, and I get it right up on my computer screen. And I love going back and watching. Um, you know, old election coverage, old newscasts, old Today shows. You know, from the '60s, '70s, '80s, '90s. And just getting a sense of sort of the evolution of of the medium, and it, it really is striking to me. You know, when we talk about election night, as as we now kind of all experience it, if you just went back twenty years, um, and I mentioned Tim Russert, twenty years ago was Bush Gore, it was the Florida recount, it was the endless election, all of that. And you watch, um, you know, our, our election night coverage. They didn't really have uh, a touchscreen. You know, Russert wasn't there at the touchscreen saying, yeah. "Hey, got this county in Florida." You know, they had a, a board where they would actually, you know, paste or whatever tiles. You know, this is the Bush state. This is the Gore state. And of course, Russert was there narrating all of it. And I think he was a riveting narrator. And that's what really, you know, drew me in. I think his presentation was just extremely compelling. He mixed um, just a, a deep knowledge of the process, a deep knowledge of the states, a deep knowledge of the players, which just a real skill at narration. And so I think it was just he was always captivating to me as a as a presenter, um, but tech, from in terms of technology, the most famous artifact. This is just twenty years ago. The most famous artifact of the news coverage is Russert's whiteboard, because they needed him to write on something, and he couldn't write on a screen. They didn't know how to do that, so they gave him a whiteboard, and he just wrote Florida, Florida, Florida on it as it all came down to that state. And I, I think that's in the Smithsonian now. Wow, I I got a kick out when we talked a couple of weeks ago, and. Because I'm totally fascinated how you know all the little counties in America. In these really important states, you can go into Wisconsin and you can say, okay, now Dane County is really important. Now let's go up to Northeast Wisconsin, Brown County. That is going to be a vital part of this state in this election. And you're just telling stories. And look, that's like, somebody who maybe knows college football and might say, yeah, you know, in Eugene this Saturday, you know, where Oregon would be playing or, or, or whatever, or a basketball game, you know, in Kingston, Rhode Island, where university of Rhode Island, they'll be playing Providence this week or whatever. You know, those counties so well, you've got to tell me, did you one day just sit there with a book of counties in the United <laughs> States and say, okay, we're going to study suburban Milwaukee today. I mean, that's honestly, that's part of it. I, I I'm at my desk here and I, I, I have my, uh, this is my drawer with, I don't, you know, if folks are watching this, I can. Yeah. They're watching it. Yeah. I don't know <laughs> if you can read this. This is, this is North Carolina. This is my prep work for North Carolina. And, you know, I've got the counties coded here. Um, probably six different ways on this map. It's past voting history. It's demographic features. It's swing from 2016, uh, 2012 to 2016. This was in preparation, you know, for 2020. 
Um, and honestly, it's a lot of staring at these maps. It's a lot of drilling down on the counties that I know are going to be important, you know, really committing their voting histories to memory. And, and the other thing I think that's just part of this, you know, is I've been doing it on air since 2014, the midterm elections in 2014. And so this, this is a process I've been using now for a number of elections. And it just starts, I, I think there's an accumulated kind of recall or knowledge that just takes hold where it's like, I, I find myself talking about the same counties every two years, you know, whichever state we're in. And so it's like, I, I've been kind of, there's this, this, this story that's kind of being written about, you know, the, these different counties, these different states. And I'm every two years, I'm kind of updating it is how, is sort of how I feel. So, you know, I can remember talking about, you know, Montgomery County, Pennsylvania in 2016, suburbs of Philadelphia. And this is, you know, okay, Clinton's getting a good number here, but I think she might've wanted better. That's what I remember about it. And then 2020, I remember looking at the same county and saying, okay, Biden's getting the number that Clinton hoped she could have gotten out of Montgomery County. And that's why Biden's winning Pennsylvania when Clinton couldn't. But, um, you know, it's it, doing it one election builds a base of knowledge, you know, for the next one. Do you tend to study the states that are going to be more in play and more competitive? Because, I mean, why would you study Mississippi or, or, right. or you know, or why would you study New York State, for instance, because those probably are not going to be in play? No question. You know, I am much more um, now I, I, where I will get the knowledge like Alabama, for instance, is one where um, I spent very little time on Alabama in the run up to 2020. Um, but we did have a very competitive uh, special Senate election there a couple of years right. ago. If you remember, Roy Moore was the Republican. Doug Jones, the Democrat, won it. That was a big event. So I do have, you know, I, I do have, uh, you know, some some Alabama on my mind, but it's not going to be as fresh because, yeah, in the in the you know, days, weeks, months running up to uh, 2020, it's North Carolina, it's Texas, it's Florida, it's Ohio, it's Iowa. It's the states that I think, yeah, I know we're going to be talking about. I want to make sure I am I'm solid on those. You told me a story about a couple of years ago. You took a little trip with your father out to the Midwest. Tell me it was some combination, sounded like it was some combination of dad time and homework. Tell me about the trip. <laughs> Yeah, honestly, and this is, it's perfect for this this podcast too because the dad time was we went to Canton and we went to the NFL Hall of Fame, so I <laughs> I, I wanted to do that and we we got to do that, and then the homework time was um, the the what made me think of it was well besides I like doing road trips, I said my dad would like going to the NFL Hall of Fame, so that would be a good thing, and the other thing that was coming up at that time this was the uh, summer of 2018 was there was a special congressional election coming up in the 12th district of Ohio, which is, it, it's sort of Columbus area. And it goes a bit to the North of Columbus, a bit to the South. It gets as far uh, East as Zanesville. Um, I said, you know, dad, let's, let's go see the, uh, let's go see the 12th district. And, um, and we saw some of some of the rest of Ohio as well. We, we kind of, um, you know, we got a good taste. We got you know out to Dayton. I was telling you, we got down to, to Athens, you know, where Ohio university is, um, but really focused on the, the 12th district. Um, cause I wanted to get a sense of it. Um, you know, there was a chance we were going to be doing some pretty heavy coverage of it. And I said, well, let me be ready for that. And then, you know, Ohio is just one of these States where, um, you know, I've spent a ton of time covering it and I don't think I've really, you know, really seen it. Let me, let me just see it. And, and it was, I think that's the, um, you know, there's a value in that. That's, that's just sort of like, um, it's not like I was going to a lot of these towns and then doing six or seven interviews with people, but even just driving through towns, get off the interstate, drive through the town, have lunch somewhere. I do think you get a sense of it. You know, I've 
traveled a lot over the years, especially going to training camps all over the place. And what I always try to do, I once took, you're probably aware that John Madden uh, took a bus across the country. He never flew. And so John Madden, one time I got to take the bus across the country with him from his home in Pleasanton, California to, he lived at the Dakota when he was on the East Coast. So he lived right in Manhattan. So that took about three and a half days. But I'll never forget, we stopped in Kearney, Nebraska one night and went into a steakhouse. And Madden is sitting across the table. And it's, honestly, it's not the best steak you've ever had. It's not the best steakhouse you've ever been in. But Madden looked across the table that night and he said, how great is this? We're eating dinner in Kearney, Nebraska. It's fantastic. He said, nobody gets to eat dinner in, in Kearney, Nebraska. And he said, now, if somebody talks about, hey, I'm from Kearney, Nebraska, hey, I've been there. And he was just so into actually boots on the ground, knowing everybody. He has great disdain for people who do not try to get to know the United States. You know, he just loved that aspect of his job. And everybody said, man, that's three days on the bus. That's it. great. What would I be doing? I'd be sitting in a hotel or sitting at home watching tape of the Cowboys and the Giants. So I'm on a bus doing it. What does it matter? He said, I'm getting to see the country. But what's your, do you have any wanderlust about the United States? Any of that sort of love of, of the country, of actually the country and not just the cities in the country? Oh yeah. No, I, and I love, um, I love driving across the country, you know, and I, I, I haven't gotten to do it a lot, but I've done it, you know, probably three or four times. I love it. Um, and, and that's, that's a very, that the Madden story there is an eloquent way of, I, I think, expressing what, what it's kind of appealing to in me. The other thing I always, I always love doing as a kid and I still will find myself doing it if I'm driving around somewhere, especially when you get outside of a city, I always loved as a kid, um, late at night, when the sun went down where I was, at least in Massachusetts, the AM radio dial. Yes. You could pick up stations a thousand miles away. Yeah. And I thought that this is, and, if, and I was a kid, this is, you know, we're talking about the 1990s. Um, you know, I'm sorry. There's a phone going off here. I'm just, okay. Yeah. I was when I was, you know, I was a kid talking in the 1990s, the internet was just kind of starting up. So, you know, the internet's had this ability to connect you with different people in places all around the world. You never would have before. So it was magical for me, pre-internet, to turn on the radio in Groton, Massachusetts, and I could get like WBBM in Chicago. Yeah, at a radio station in Detroit. Um, I I just I I that never ceased to amaze me. And then I remember just a couple of years ago, in the 2016, I was down in South Carolina for the primary, the Republican presidential primary, and I was driving uh, from um, uh, where where I was in York County, which is where Rock Hill is. I was driving from there back to Columbia, where where we were uh, stationed. And so I was on this stretch of highway, not much around. I said, I bet, I, let me see if I could pick up, and I did, WBZ in Boston, 10.30 a.m. In South Carolina, I'm listening to this station I listened to every morning growing up as a kid, and I picked it up in South Carolina. And that, that sort of thing is, um, I, I always thought, you know, again, the internet, I think, has probably changed this experience or something, but I always felt like I was listening in on a different part of the country that I, almost like eavesdropping on a different, you know, a different part of the country that I wasn't supposed to be listening to. And I, I always love that feeling. Do you find doing television that 
you to get good at it, you practiced a lot? Or do you find that to do television right, you just want to be yourself and you don't want to play to the camera? I think the second part is is the key. Um, the more it's rehearsed and the more you're like, here's the line. I Because I, I've done that. I've made that mistake a number of times, I think, where I will come up with the line that I want to use that I think is, you know, pithy or, or you know, um, or, or funny or anything. Um, I, I think half the time, at least I end up mangling a line. Um, you know, it's like, cause I'm trying to deliver it on the air as I've already heard it in my head. And I, I, I think it's much more valuable to, um, to do the research, to know the material, um, to build that kind of repetition where you're just really familiarizing yourself with the material. Um, and I think once you've, once you've really kind of absorbed it, you'll go on the air and you, I think you kind of trust your mind is going to kind of figure out where to go with it and what dots to connect. That's how I've always kind of approached it. Um, at least with elections. Yeah. One of the, one of the things I've noticed about watching you, particularly this year on election night, the very long election night process is that it would be impossible for you to have any sort of script because crap happens at the speed of sound. And so you have to just simply, you have to just be somewhat knowledgeable and Hey, let the chips fall where they may. Yeah, it's funny. They um, where I'm standing in the studio, sort of a, it's a corner of the studio where the board is, and you know they've got the um, it's basically like a handheld camera in front of me, but it's got a little screen on it for the teleprompter. And they're always asking me, "Do you want the the teleprompter on for this? Do you have you know?" And I show up to do these hits, and I tell them that there's trust me, there's nothing in there for these. Uh, we're just gonna we're just gonna kind of wing it, and we're just gonna kind of improvise it. And it's actually I, I'm I'm terrible in, in the occasions when they've had me stand there and they've they've put you know a script in there for something. And sometimes you need to because you got to read a, an announcement or something. It, it 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 comes off totally differently. I'm not good at reading it. It's you know it's very stiff. Um, you could tell I'm reading something, and I'm kind of squinting to to make it out. So it's I, I think they've largely figured out with me. Let's just let's just let them go. You know. What do you think, as we record this today, basically the Electoral College uh, electors are meeting all over the country and formally announcing, will formally announce uh, the next president, Joe Biden. What should America learn from this contentious time, this very hard time in our democracy? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I mean, look, there's been there has been more uh, for lack of a better term, there has been more noise um, in the wake of the November election about the process, um, about what happened on Election Day and about what is to happen between Election Day and the inauguration. There's been more noise, uh, more chaos um, than you've ever seen in modern times. But I think the important thing to realize is that through all of the noise or in the midst of all of the noise, the process is still playing out and it's playing out exactly as, as, as scripted as exactly as is prescribed in the constitution um, exactly as has been practiced before. Um, that is what's that you mentioned the electoral college today. I mean, that is, that's always happens. You know, basically a month after the election state after state, they get together and they ratify what happened on election day. And then in January, that'll come before you know the House. The House will vote to accept 
the electoral college results. And then a couple of weeks later, there will be an inauguration uh, of a president. And, and there is for all of the noise of the last month, um, everything that is supposed to happen, that needs to happen structurally, procedurally is still happening. And, and I think none of that has changed. Well, we'll end with this, Steve, and thank you very much for being my guest. Um, I, I'm wondering what it's like now for you to be famous. You know, you probably had no desire, no thought, no discussion with anybody. Hey, how do you handle fame? But so what's it like to be famous now and probably to walk on the street and have people saying, hey, Steve Kornacki, I love you on TV. What's what's all that like for you? I think you're right. I, I this was uh, unexpected, and I'm not uh, uh, I'm not quite sure how I feel about it. But I think it's a good time for this to happen because in the middle of a pandemic, there aren't too many people on the street. Uh, I'm not exactly going into restaurants or anything where so it's. I, I haven't had a ton of experiences. You know, I, I've had some people come up to me outside, and yeah, I walk to and from the office, and it's. I mean, it's good. I I, I think it's it's great to um, to hear from people who who enjoy what I do and and, and say nice things. But I also I think my sense of this very much is um, it's fleeting, um, you know, fads come and go, tastes come and go. So I enjoy it for a few months and, and um, you know, in, in a few months, there'll be other obsessions. The culture will have other things that it's fixated on. Um, and, you know, hopefully I'll still be uh, doing some things I enjoy. You know, as I watched the election this year, um, I found myself, I watched a bunch of Fox News because look, I'm a Democrat, but I watched a lot of different kinds of news. So I watched the election on Fox, I watched on CNN, I watched on NBC, MSNBC. And so I really, really enjoyed it. I, and, and it was so interesting to watch you on other networks. And I'm sure other networks were interested in watching you comparing it like to John King. So are you in any way like a football coach would do, which is you watch your rivals and you try to get ideas or you just see what they're doing. Do you ever find yourself watching other networks, particularly around election time to see, Hey, wonder what John King is doing or Hey, do you ever do that? I I probably should. Um, and I, I honestly don't. The the thing that I, um, and, and the reason is it's a, it's, it's probably a very dumb reason but I, I am almost afraid of what I'll see because I will, I feel like I will see, and I've had this experience in other contexts. I'll see five things right away that they did better and it'll drive me crazy that I didn't do them. And, you know, an election only comes around, obviously every major elections, you know, not every week. So it's not like I can just tweak it and change it next week or tweak it and change it tomorrow. Um, so it just, it, it feels like a wasted effort to me because I will, I feel that I will, I will feel very, inadequate compared to it. So I, I prefer to just not engage with it. Steve, you're great at your job. I've loved getting to know you a little bit. And uh, I'm really happy you're showing America playoff possibilities on NBC right now. It must feel like being in sort of the playpen of life, but we're enjoying watching you and having you on the network. Um, no, thank you, Peter. I, and I'm, it's truly, it's like a thrill for me to get to do this. I'm, I'm having a blast doing it. And um and honestly, I, I told you this off the air, but like I said, I've been a fan, you know, since I was a kid. I've been reading you for a long time. I'm a huge fan of yours. So this is a this is a treat to get this chance. I appreciate it. Well, thanks very much, Steve. Much appreciated and much success to you. Thanks.
Thanks, Peter. Our thanks to Justin Tucker and Steve Kornacki for being the inaugural guests on the Peter King podcast television version on Peacock. I want you to tell everybody who you know, 6 p.m. every Wednesday, watch and listen to the Peter King podcast on Peacock. And also, let's say you don't have a television. If you don't have a television and you don't want to watch Peacock for free, by the way, if you don't have a TV, you can also get the Peter King podcast wherever you get your podcast. Either way, please watch, listen, and learn from some of the smartest people in the pro football world. Thanks a lot for joining me this week, and we'll be back next week for a fresh The Peter King Podcast.